So uh, if you have a Bible, turn, in, turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Chapter, uh, verse 5 and 6 say this. Fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. Fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. So uh, this is the third week of Ecclesiastes. And, and we started off the week, or we started off the series by acknowledging the fact that, that this is written by a guy who calls himself the teacher. And I want to start off this morning by reminding ourselves of essentially who the teacher is. Why does this guy or this person, what, what, do we, uh, can, what can we expect in terms of trusting him? Why should we listen to what this teacher has to say? Uh, and he lays it out for us in chapter two. So what I want to do is just go through the list that the teacher claims for himself. He says in chapter two, look, I built houses. I built vineyards. I created gardens and parks. I owned slaves, a, bu a bunch of slaves. I had more herds and more flocks than anybody in Jerusalem. I amassed silver. I amassed gold. I amassed more treasures than anybody around me. I had singers, and I had, yes, it's in the Bible, a harem, okay? And then at the end of that list, if you remember a couple weeks ago, we talked about it. He, he throws out this phrase. He lists all these things out, and then he said, but when I surveyed. And so at the same time that he has all these possessions and he's done all these things, he's also a person of pretty serious self-reflection. So he achieves all these things, he gets all these things, and then he takes a, a, a step back and he really thinks about his life and where is it, where is it all headed? And in, in, in that sense, like I would say, that is why I can listen to the teacher because essentially he's a guy who says, look, I got it all. I've done it all. The game of life, I won it, right? I did all of these things. And essentially, it's almost as if he can say, so let me tell you how this story ends. Let me tell you how this life unfolds if this is the end all and the be all of your existence. And of course, you know, he says, look, it's all meaningless. It's all vapor. All of these things are important, but they are passing away. I don't know if you've ever known anybody like that who had just, they had won at life, you know? And at the same time, they would say, look, I've, I've done it all. But you know what? They've passed on to something deeper than just their possessions. Anybody ever known anybody like that in their life that maybe they had just, they had done everything there was to do, but there was a lightness to their being. They were unencumbered by these things because these are the same things in life that can weigh us down anybody ever had that reality like the more you collect these things the more you're like oh wait a minute but there's still a drive in us to, to to want them isn't there 
Maybe I'm the only one who's honest. Yes, there's a drive in, in my life to want the things, maybe not the harem, but. So in verse five and six, uh, we're just gonna rest in these two verses because there's something very interesting going on in them. Verse five and six, there are, t- there are three references to the word hands. Fools fold their hands and ruin themselves better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil. What's interesting about this is every one of those words in Hebrew is different. And Hebrew, again, is a very word-poor language. So sometimes you can have a word that means multiple things, but you also have to take a very serious look at the context because the context in Hebrew will tell you what the word means. And in this passage, Three times it mentions hands. In English, it's always hand, handful, handful. In Hebrew, it's three different words with three different subtle meanings. In verse five, uh, when he says fools fold their hands, the Hebrew word is yod. Let me hear you say yod. Yeah, so it can mean hands. It does mean hands. But it means also energy and power and strength. So the indication here and sort of the context would tell us that that Yod is not just folding your hands. It has something to do with who you are and the things that God has given you and the passions that you have and the interests that you have and the energies that you have and the influence that you have. It's not just hands. Verse 6, he says, a better one hand with tranquility. And the Hebrew word in verse five or verse six here, the first word is the word kaf. Let me hear you say kaf. It does mean hand, not like kaf, <clears throat> but like kaf, K-A-P-H. It means hand, but it, there's, also, there's also a context that it can mean not just your hand, but your open palm. Your open palm. And then the context actually goes further because there's an indication that the word can mean, uh, or the context can mean peace and tranquility. You know, that's what, your, that's what the Bible translates verse 6 as. Better a handful with tranquility. Another translation says, better a handful of quiet. Isn't that cool? A handful of quiet. That's in the open palm of your hand. And then the last Hebrew word in the passage is uh, the word uh, kofen. Kofen. You want to say that? Go for it. Hand, but different. But a fist. So better one handful with tranquility than two hands that are clenched together. And so when you, when you take the verses that way, you can see that the verses are referencing three different postures towards life. Three different postures towards even running after the list of things that the teacher has run after, run after in chapter two. There is, a, there is a posture of folded hands. There is a posture of clenched fists, and there is a posture of an open palm. So 
The question for us this morning is, what might those postures look like in our lives? So, uh, I don't know, maybe 60 miles north of Orlando, there's this magical wonderland that is also a strange, strange place, an alternate reality called the villages. Anybody ever heard of the villages? Okay. Did you know that the villages is considered one of the top five fastest growing metropolises in the United States? In 2010, the population of the villages was 51,000 people. Four years later, it was 115,000 people, most of them retired, most of them driving golf carts all over the place, most of them decorating their golf carts in very cool and unexpected, yes, that is a Chicago Bears golf cart, some of them even rolling around in their golf carts on rims, they take the golf carts seriously in the villages. So I don't know if you've ever been there. I, I've been there a few times because, not because I'm retired, but because uh, when I was taking, when I was in seminary in Orlando, I had uh, some friends of mine who lived in the villages and I could stay with them and drive into town. And so that was free place to stay. And, and, I, and uh, I would hang out there and I was like, what in the world? What have I walked into? If you've ever, if you've ever been there, there are all these Little, little villages that are sort of like little Disney worlds for old people. Um, forgive me, but like they have different themes. So there's one little village that is set up like a harbor, but it's, it's all kind of built. It's not a natural harbor. And so it looks like you're in a seaside town in the middle of central Florida, right? There's another one that looks like an old west town, seriously. And, and they all have a little town square, and most of them have chain restaurants and a movie theater. And literally, like, yeah, just wall-to-wall golf carts. They're driving around. Um, so I was, I was staying down there, and I had a day off of class, and I needed a place to study. And so I was looking for, you know, I just Googled, you know, where's the coffee shop? And they're like, oh, hey, there's one in... Some, I didn't know where it was at the time. I didn't know that it was in the Harbor Village or whatever it was called. So I got the directions and I drove over there. And um, I'm driving down there, you know, and I get, I see all the golf carts. And I'm like, whoa, this is really strange. I go to the coffee shop and I'm thinking, you know what? I, I get it that this is a retirement village. So it'll probably be a pretty chill experience. And let me tell you, man, that coffee shop was like packed with retired people. And so then I was like, okay, well, it's cool. I'll find a, I'll find a chair, but it'll still be, oh, they're chill because they're retired people. They're not going to bother anybody. If you got up for like 30 seconds and like turned around, those people would take your chair. Like it would, there was not a seat to be had in Starbucks. And here's the deal. It stayed like that for like two and a half, three hours. I'm there studying and it is just packed. And these people are just there. And they're just talking and talking and talking and complaining and complaining and complaining. What was on the news last night? What are the politicians saying? Where's this country headed? Well, if I was in power, I would do this. Well, if I did this, if it was this way, I would do that. And, and the overarching thought that I started to develop is like, these people need something to do. Like, maybe the golf cart customization needs to be a little bit more hands-on. 
And I want to suggest to you that on a, on a kind of a, a silly level, that is what folded hands life looks like. You see, God has given us all gifts and talents and energies and passions, but a fool folds his hands and just sits down. And they just check out. Here's the interesting thing about that verse. Is it also says that when you fold your hands and when you check out, uh, the, the translation I read says destruction kind of follows. And on one hand, you could say, look, this is kind of just like Proverbs, Proverbs 6 that this thing about lazy people, uh, you know, so Proverbs 6 would say something like this. How long will you lie there, you sluggard? When will you get up from your sleep? Uh, a little rest, a little napping, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and what happens next? Poverty comes, right? That's one way to understand this. But I think there's a really interesting relationship between when you step out of your desire to impact your world, anxiety kind of sets in. You see, I, I believe that we are created uh, with this thing called agency. We are created to act. We are created to have influence on ourselves, on those closest to us, on the world around us. And when you check out and you just kind of say, I'm done, I think what happens is that there's, a, there's an accompanying anxiety that happens where we all of a sudden, we're like, I'm not acting, but I, I don't feel any more at peace. I actually feel worse. And maybe the best thing that you could do in that moment is actually stand back up and say, well, I'm going to do something. I'm going to get involved. You know, and this is not a retirement thing, you understand? Fools fold their hands. Some of us here, if we were honest, we would say, I sat down. I sat down. And I kind of checked out. And yes, I have these talents. And yes, I have these gifts. But I'm kind of done with it. And maybe you have a good reason for that checking out. But there will come a time when you have to say that season of mourning, of, of reassessing, of adjusting is over. And you have to choose to stand back up. So the question that I want to ask you, first of all, is, is, is that you? I mean, is there an area of your life where you have sat down and folded your hands and just said, I'm out. I'm out. Fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. And then we go to the other end of the spectrum. I want to show you a picture of this guy. Uh, his name is Henry Rollins. He was uh, the lead singer in one of the seminal punk bands of the 80s and early 90s called Black Flag. I'm sure you guys are really down with the Black Flag, right? Uh, here's a picture of him performing just uh, the vision of intensity. 
Uh, I actually have a short video of, of him uh, performing as well. There's no audio to it, but I just wanted to show you what this man looks like as he's playing. I mean, he is focused and he is intense. It doesn't relent. And, and just so you know, he always performs in black shorts and nothing else. It's kind of that gladiator look, right? That Mike Tyson thing going on. I read uh, his book a few years back. He's written a few books. And he wrote this book, just an autobiography of a season of his life. And the thing that struck me about the autobiography is he was obsessed with his work. He had a work ethic, unlike anybody else I had ever seen. Very rigid, like, I only eat this way. You know, I only have this to eat. And he says uh, the work that he does is the only thing that matters to him. Let me, let me read a couple quotes that, that he said. These are great quotes. Uh, I don't believe in fate or destiny. I believe in various degrees of hatred, paranoia, and abandonment. That's the fuel that he lives on. He says, I am on until I'm dead, like a light bulb. Intensity. I'm not even sure what this one means, but it sounds cool. I forged myself out of a vacuum. I crawl along the highway on hacked off stumps year after year. Some wonder how and why I never do. And then this, which I think has nothing to do with the message, but is just great. He says, my optimism wears heavy boots and is loud. <laughs> the picture I'm trying to paint for you is a guy that lives his life at 150 miles an hour. But there is almost an anxiety and a tension there and an unwillingness to acknowledge that maybe there's a different way of being. I'm on like a light bulb until I'm dead. I, my, the thing that fuels me is paranoia and abandonment. There's a, a Flannery O'Connor short story that uh, is in a book that, that's one of my dear books. Uh, don't put the slide up, please, yet. So Flannery O'Connor, great Southern Gothic Christian writer. She writes a story called The Turkey, and The Turkey is, a, uh, is about this young boy, and he's going hunting for a turkey. And, and he has a sort of an outlook on life that would say, you know, I'm not sure that anything good has ever happened to me. He stumbles across a turkey that's been shot by another hunter, and he picks the turkey up, and all of a sudden, his mentality is such, essentially, that, you know what? I have a turkey. God must love me. God must love me because he gave me this turkey. And then he's sort of walking with the turkey. He's going back into town, and he's like, oh, well, since God gave me this turkey, maybe I should do something for God, you know? So maybe I should sell the turkey to, you know, the local processing shop, and, and when I get that, I'm going to give the money away because that's what God would want because he gave me this turkey. And then, uh, because it's Flannery O'Connor, as he's coming into town, he runs into a, a group of boys, and they say, you know, that's a pretty big turkey you've got there. And he says, yeah. And they just reach up, and they take it from him. And he stands there. And then this is what, the way the story ends. He ran faster and faster, and as he turned up the road to his house, his heart was running as fast as his legs, and he was certain that something awful was tearing behind him with its arms rigid and its fingers ready to clutch. And I see that in people like Henry Rollins, and I see that 
in an approach to life that is clenched fists with toil. Because something is chasing us. And maybe when every once in a while when you get that thing, that thing on the list, you're like, oh, God loves me. Thank you. God loves me. Now, how can I perform back for you? How can I do this tit-for-tat thing with you, God? But if I happen to lose that thing, then God is back chasing me, hounding me down, and I better just run. I better just run. Two-handed toil, clenched fists. That's what the verse ends with. So, is there anywhere in your life where if you were really honest with me or honest with your growth group leader, you would say, you know what? There's a thing that I'm chasing. And if I get it, I'm going to put both hands on it and I'm going to squeeze. And I'm going to squeeze. And I'm never going to let it go. Is there anywhere in your life where you were like, you know what? I have had a rigid hold over this thing, on this thing, and I will never, ever release it. But in that is also because if I release it, then I'll know that God does not like me. And he is chasing after me. So I better run and run and run. But there is a way of living that looks different. Because in between sitting down and folding your hands and checking out, in between this place and in between squeezing and and being filled with anxiety over the things that you do have is open-handed living. Living where you're not checked out where you are vitally contributing and, and even running after things occasionally because they're important to you. But when you get them, rather than this, you just this. So what might open-handed living look like? I want to give you three things to think about that have helped me and other people. First of all, open-handed living looks like process over results. Process over results. One of my favorite movie directors is a guy named Guy Ritchie. I think we have a picture of him. He uh, directed a few of my favorite movies, a movie called Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels. He's, he's thoroughly British. Um, Snatch, he, he did a movie called Snatch with uh, Brad Pitt and some other folks. I was listening to a podcast with him, and, and he fully embraces process over results. He said, every time I make a movie, I thoroughly enjoy it because it's all about the process. What can I learn? What can I get out of this process? He said, now, I have no control over how that movie performs, which is good because he just did the King Arthur movie and is a historic flop. But he says, okay, yeah, it might Inhibit my ability to make more movies. That's one thing he said, but it will not ever touch what I have learned in the process. So a way to start living open-handedly is just to say, you know what? The process is just as important as the results. What am I learning along the way? Because when you are learning along the way, that cannot be taken from you. 
There's a few scriptures that I just, I think Jesus hints at this in so many scriptures. Uh, John 21, at the end of, uh, right after Jesus has been resurrected, he's interacting with some of his disciples. I love this. He's talking to Peter. And Peter looks at this other disciple, and, and, and Jesus is saying, hey, Peter, I want this from you, and this is going on. And then Peter's like, hey, what about that other disciple? And Jesus, my translation up here literally says, what is it to you? What does it matter to you about what happens to that guy? He says, Peter, it's your job to just follow me. What's it to you what's happening to anybody else? What's it to you what the results are? Your job is to be in this moment, follow Jesus. That's the process. One of my favorite passages in all of the Gospels is in Luke 17. The disciples are talking to Jesus and they're like, man, you know, so many great things are going on. Jesus tells this little parable. I had literally never paid attention to it to about two years ago. And essentially, I'm going to summarize it for you. Jesus tells a parable of saying, hey, if the servants go out and they work in the field all day and they come to the owner of the house, the owner of the house does not go, oh, man, come in and sit down and have a meal and put your feet up and do all this thing. The owner of the house doesn't do that. And then he tells his disciples, just be glad that you're servants and you have something to do. In other words, sometimes we get like thinking of this mentality of like, I've done so much for Jesus. He owes me a meal. And Jesus just says, look, you're all just servants. Just be content to serve. And then the last part is uh, Jesus himself and John uh, John. Five, I think. He's talking to some people and he says, Jesus, you know what? Jesus says, you know what I do? I do what the Father called me to do. That's what I do. Yes, there are many other things out there that I could be doing. Yes, there are many results that I could be embracing, but Jesus says, you know what? There's things I have to do right now, and that's what I do. I do what the Father calls me to do. A focus on the process. The second thing that you can do is you can embrace the idea that we really do get by giving. We really do get by giving. You see, I, and I thought about clever ways to show this, but I can't, so I'm gonna ask Darren here to stand up. Sorry, I told you you weren't gonna stand up, but you are. Stand up, turn around. Everybody say hi to Darren. Darren, make a fist, okay? If we live in two-handed living with clenched fists, okay, yeah, Darren can put something in that fist. But there are two realities that are really, really true. The first is, who can get in there? What's inside this thing? You know, can your kids get in there to get it? Can your friends get in there to get it? Yeah, you can hold on to that thing, but guess what? Once you do that, nobody else can get to it. Right? And then the other thing is, Guess what? Nobody can put anything else in. But if you open your hand, now people can come and they can take. And what's more, God can put more in. So you can choose to live. Thank you. You can choose to live close-fisted. But guess what? Anything that comes your way can just like, it might just pour right over that fist. But if you choose to open your hand... And understand, this is not about money. This can be open-handed about anything. 
Can you be open-handed with your friendships? Can you be open-handed with your family? Can you be open-handed with your house, your car? This can go either way for anything. A couple, a couple things out of the Gospels that, that drive this home for me is Jesus says in Matthew 5, look, don't have a stingy eye. Matthew 5, he's talking about, look, where your, where your treasure is, your heart's going to be. Don't let the eye of your body become darkened by stuff. So he says, look, open your hands, essentially. Don't be stingy with your stuff. And one of the most hard-hitting quotes and teachings that he has is like, look, if you want to keep your life, if you want to be close-fisted with your life, guess what? That is the number one way to lose it because nothing else can come in. And when you open your hand, you are saying something very important about the universe. Because most of us don't open our hand because what? We're afraid that someone will come and take the thing that's in it and nothing else will come. Amen, anybody? But what if the universe isn't like that? What if the God that we're running after is a God of love and he just says, look, just let go of it. I'll put something else there. In uh, the, the Lord's Prayer, what we would call or the Our Father, if you come from a different faith tradition, he, the disciples come to say, Jesus, tell us how to pray. And one of the lines is the prayer is what? Give us our daily bread. Daily Daily bread. Daily bread. But what happens, where's the daily bread go if this is our posture towards living? So a fool sits, folds their hands, checks out. Or you can run after with two-handed clenched fists and cultivate a whole much of anxiety and toil, or you can live in the middle. And the last secret to it is to stop running. Stop running. Because just like that Flannery O'Connor story, you see, some of us are running and running and running because we think that something awful is after us. And if we slow down and if we don't get the next thing, then it might catch us. But God's not like that. What if I told you if you stopped running right now and just stood still, that you would be okay? What if I told you that the next thing you got wouldn't make God love you anymore? And it wouldn't make God love you any less. What if I told you that in Jeremiah 31, God says, look, I've drawn you people with an everlasting love. The love for you I have for you people is an everlasting love. What if I told you that in Isaiah 30, this God says, look, it's returning and in rest that you will be saved. So stop running. Running will not get you there. Rest gets you there. Surrender gets you there. And what if I told you 
that this God would say, look, in John, 1 John 3, he would say, behold, what manner of love that we should be called the children of God. That's open-handed living. That's an invitation to release the things that are driving you and to accept what God's given you daily. So, the invitation here if I could be any more clear, is if there's a place where you've checked out, stand back up. Stand back up. Life needs you. You are called to be an agent of God's redemptive work in the world. Now, some of us have little roles to play. Some of us have big roles to play. But a fool folds their hands and cultivates destruction and anxiety. And the invitation is, if you've run and 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 and something awful is chasing you, maybe it's time to stop running. Maybe it's time to stop running. And just say, you know what? I can't do this anymore. And I'm going to live an open-handed life. If I could sum it up in three ways, I would just say it this way, that an open-handed life, it starts when we understand, again, the process is just as important as the results. The journey is as important as the destination. You have the opportunity to learn right now. You have the opportunity to grow right now. And an open-handed life also starts when we can trust that the universe is actually a place of profound trust and that we have a heavenly father who will give us our daily bread if we would open up our hands and be willing to let people take things and give things out of our hands. And then lastly, it starts when we realize that nothing is chasing us. And if you choose to stop running, you are loved right here, right now, in your beauty and in your brokenness. There is no something awful coming to you. It is a God of radical and infinite love. Let's pray together. 